0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today from the pulpit to the pew. If you have your Bible, if you have your Bible turn. Matthew chapter 1 we're going to be in starting in verse 18 we're going to go through the book uh, all the way into chapter 2 of Matthew and as we do so let me rehash a couple things for you from last week real quick and uh, as we do one of the things we one things I want to make very clear is that make very clear is that When we talked about this and we began this, like I said, I wanted to do a study through the book of Matthew, but I wanted to look at things as how they applied then, uh, look at the consequences maybe around those things, but also how we apply it now, if it's possible. At least make a correlation. Um, So often we hear the the accounts of Jesus' birth around a time of the year where People will set aside Christmas in December, and they'll talk about the birth of Christ, and that's about the last time that they talk about the birth of Christ. But as we do this uh, series through the Book of Matthew, there's more to it than just that. I, I talked about there were two huge matters of importance last week. One of them was this passage showed that is a that uh, is a vision was a vision of God's covenants, and we talked and we walked through. The Adamic uh, or the covenant of works, the Adamic covenant. We talk about the covenant of grace and its sub of the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And then we come into the new covenant of Christ. We talk about how that passage stresses the covenant of promise all the way with Abraham, all the way through the new covenant. We also talked about the passage was evidence that God uses fallible people. To fulfill his purpose. And while we use that, I talk about five specifically, five women that were met, mentioned in that genealogy. And those five women, <clears throat> there's people from all different backgrounds. There are people who are sinners, pagans. There are people who were sinned against and, and were abused. There are people all along those lines. But here, God takes those people and God takes that purpose and He uses it for His glory to bring about Christ who would save the people from their sins. And so that's where I'm I'm kind of picking up from last week. Whereas last week we discussed the foundation and the importance behind the genealogy, today we will discuss a very pertinent subject that not only can be we can see applied back then, but we also can bring it forward to its application. So Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, read with me. Matthew chapter 1, and this we're going to break this down little by little, but definitely this is going to be a Uh, definitely this is going to be a huge chunk. Okay, it's just a scripture, just real quick, because it's going to line out the whole thing for today, tonight. All right, so it says, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt.' And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent, out, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under And he rose and took the child with his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard of Achilles was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets may, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I, I'm going to tell you right now, there, in many ways, people would talk about the wise men or these these magi or whatever you want to call them a lot of people would focus on these men who came and brought him gifts others might even look at it and say let's let's focus on all the prophecies that were fulfilled the fact is if you look at this time and time again prophecies that were there that were given in the old testament were fulfilled here as as these events occurred but I want you to see something even greater. Here's the thing. We, we have it on there, and I told you what the title of this message was. The title of this message is The Duty of Men Under Christ to Protect Life. The Duty of Men Under Christ to Protect Life. Take it over there, okay? Take it over there. A le- and so first off, I want to talk about a lesson from the example of, jo- of Joseph. An ex- a lesson from the example of Joseph. We're going to focus on a little bit of Joseph tonight, and I, you know what? I've heard a lot of people downplay the role of Joseph, but just like just like so many other situations, Joseph isn't the focus here of this passage. G- Joseph is not the focus of the gospel, isn't he? Is he? But he plays a part. He plays a big part. A, if you want to, I should have said, Joseph did not, and this is gonna sound funny maybe to you, Joseph did not leave Jesus as an orphan. You look at you look at the theme passage in that if we look at the theme passage, let me ask you a question Was Joseph Jesus' father? It's okay to be wrong if you're not. Was Joseph Jesus' his father? No. Jesus was placed in the womb of Mary by the Spirit of God. Is what we learn, right? But let me ask you a question. Did Joseph act like a father to Jesus? You know, when we look at this passage and we talk about he 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 almost wanted to it, it talks about he was Mary was betrothed to Joseph and when he he wanted to divorce her quietly, not putting her to shame. Did he have according to the law, if, if she had come up pregnant, could he have divorced her quiet could he have divorced her? Absolutely. Actually she could have been put to death. We aren't going to go into all the things, but there are some things about there are some things about people who are in this this place where they are are betrothed to be married, and something happens and they end up conceiving a child. All right, before the marriage is fulfilled, and here's the thing I want to share this with y'all. Whether this is per this is he has done it or not or not yet. One of the things you need to understand is that. The husband, the man, would pay a dowry toward the wife's, the wife to be's father. Now, it wasn't to give, pay. It wasn't like he's buying his bride. Okay, I think have y'all, y'all remember me talking about this? The dowry would be would be repaid, would be paid, but on, ultimately it was her inheritance. And if the husband did something wrong and left, she had money to be able to take care of herself. Okay, to an extent, it was about the equivalent of three years' salary. Okay? So it was a lot of money saved up in order to that was paid. So I want I want you to see something really clearly. I asked that question was Joseph Jesus' father? In reality, no. Right? But what did he do? He didn't leave Jesus to be raised by his mother alone. Now, no one wants to talk about this, and maybe it's not significant to others, but he didn't act like none other. He raised and took care of Jesus as if he was his own. How do I know this? Well, look at B. Look at B. Joseph left all things familiar to protect Jesus. He did something spectacular. He was warned in a dream that Herod was going to destroy, the, destroy Jesus was going to wanted to hunt down and kill Jesus. In fact, we know from just a moment ago what happened. Herod killed all the babies under two, under the age of two. So that would be like, how, how many children do you think that would be? Be quite a bit, wouldn't it? All because what? Well, we'll see in a moment. But what does Joseph do? Joseph not only does he treats him as Jesus, as if he is his son. He takes care of him. He raises him, but he leaves everything familiar to him. And, and you might go, well, that's not much of a sacrifice. Well, yes, it was because what? Guess what? Where was Joseph from? Joseph was from Galilee. Joseph was from these areas. Where Joseph? Joseph was leaving his family all of his family ties, all of his business. And where is he going? He's going back, interesting enough, back to Egypt. He's told to leave to go to Egypt. That means he has to establish himself in a trade. Now we know that later on we hear that he's a carpenter. He's, yeah. Jesus aren't, isn't Jesus the carpenter's son? But look, Think about this. He's going to a foreign land to what? And he has to he has to be able to support his family. He has to be able to do these. So he gives up everything. The first child that comes into the family is not even his own. Think about all the things that go along with this. And he leaves everything, sacrifices everything to protect Jesus. That's what we find in, in in when we look at Matthew two, thirteen through fifteen. And it fulfills prophecy in doing so, but he does it. But see, Joseph also, Joseph submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Joseph submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He's been submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit all along. The Spirit of God. But I want you to hear, when, when we think about this, if you look at, what well, you leave that up there, think about what happens the Lord comes to him in a dream again, and what happens? Says it's time for you to go home. Now we don't know how long he's been there. We don't, right? We don't know how much time has passed. But what we do know, what we do know, is that it could have been possible at just about the time he gets comfortable, he builds his business, everything's taken off and everything's fine. <laughs> the Lord says, all right, it's time to go home. Everything's safe. And guess what he does? He rebrutes again, and he goes back. Once again, I I say this is an interesting way to tie in for a Father's Day, but Joseph, who was not the actual father of Jesus, took him and raised him as his own in obedience to God. He fled and went to a foreign land and left everything familiar to him in obedience to God to protect Jesus and then after being there for however long he comes back home in in obedience to God well I think there's a lesson here to be learned and as I said, when I said the title of this is The Duty of Men Under Christ to Protect Life, I believe we see an example of Joseph very simply here. And So, number two is, how do we follow Joseph's example in a culture of perversion and death? This is really what we want to talk about. How do we, how do we follow Joseph's example in a culture of perversion and death? You might go ahead and put up the next little point. because First, we have to recognize the culture around us. We have to recognize the culture around us. What does a culture around us look like? You go ahead and put up the next one because it's a point too. <laughs> it's one of rival gods who seek to destroy that which is not of their kingdom. And while you all write that down, if you need me to ask, say it again, we recognize the culture around us, and it's one, it's a culture of rival gods who seek to destroy that which is not of their kingdom. Now, why would I put all these points here? Okay, I got to get this out there first. Well, when we look at after Jesus was born, what did, and here come these wise men from a foreign land, and what are they coming to do? They're coming to worship this king, right? They're coming to worship this king. And I think it's interesting. When Herod the king heard this, there's something very important to hear. When he heard, he heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod was troubled that the king that was prophesied was coming. Why would that be? Why would he be troubled? There's a reason, isn't there? And he tells them, he calls the he, he goes and he finds out what the prophecy says. And instead of being, instead of hearing the prophecy and saying, you know what? This is so this is uh this this is this removes all anxiety, it remo- removes all um, worries from my life. Now, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming. But that's not what he does, is it? No, he tells the wise men to go, what? Search it out, and when you find him, let me know so I can go and worship him. Well, this is the thing about a culture that's perverted and that's focused on death. There's this thing about we need to recognize about cultures If there is a rival God, we live in a culture of rival gods that seek to destroy anything that's not their kingdom. And we have evidence of what Herod did. See, it's also, too, it's also one that shows uh, their allegiance to and worship of their idols. I'm giving you a long one here again. I'm sorry. It's, it shows their allegiance to and worship of their idols through blood sacrifice of the weak. is one that shows their allegiance to and worship of their idols through blood sacrifice of the weak. We find that when Herod was new realized he had been tricked and the wise men had gone home a different way instead of, instead of coming, what was, what was his heart's first desire? I'm going to kill every living child under two years old. Why? They're a rival God. They're a rival king. See, what we've learned from Herod is Herod reigned and he ruled, but he did not rule and reign under God. He was an evil man. The other thing we need to understand is remember when the wise men came saying they're searching for the king it says Herod was troubled and all the people there in Jerusalem I mean there with him, right? In Jerusalem with him. When Herod made a command to gather up all the children and kill them who opposed him? Nobody. Nobody. What does it tell you about the culture? Was it a culture that wanted to bring in the king of kings and lord of lords? No, it was a culture that wanted sought to destroy anything that was a rival god, a rival king. And if you look back at the history Uh, of Israel. When we look back in, in 1 Samuel 8 when they said give us a king like all the other nations all the pagans around us, give us this king what they've done consistently and what they've done is they looked and they looked to someone to rule over them that would make them big and mighty and powerful in the eyes of the nations rather than look big and mighty and powerful in the eyes of God because they rely on a heavenly God Know what happens in these moments is that what it does is it reveals, the culture reveals where their allegiance lies. It reveals where their worship lies regarding idols. And they do it through blood sacrifice of the weakest. What happened to the parents? Nothing. They don't go after the adults, do they? They go after the children, the ones who can't defend themselves. Notice there was no opposition to Herod by the people of any rank—not his soldiers, not the people, nothing. And remember, when the wise, always like said, when they, the people were troubled. What they're troubled. And I think about this, and I think about Romans one, and I'm going to go just to 28 through 32. A culture that is, that is Let me say this: a culture, and there's no no play on words here. They're hell bent on doing what they want to do themselves, whatever they seek and they desire for themselves. It's a culture that seeks after everything but God. Romans one 28 through 28-32 says, And since they did not sit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a culture that it worships, has allegiance to, and worship of of, of of idols, and they offer the blood sacrifice of the weakest. Folks, we live in the same type of time today. And I, I'm not saying that these... In fact, that's why I paused for a second not to go to the next scripture. Here's what happens when a, a people chase after everything but God. When they focus on everything but God. When they have a false idol as their ruler and their God... Whether it be themselves or the government or what have you. They're going to destroy anything. And usually it's the weakest. It's the generations that are to come. In our country today, it's it's what we call it's it's really what we call the, the Holocaust of what of abortion. But it's more than that. People are chasing after the God of self to, at, at such a pace. And what do we do as Christians? We're not out there in opposition to them saying, but this is the word of God. Listen, we're not out there preaching to them. We're not out there teaching them. We're not out there going and going contrary to the culture. We What we're doing is we're drawing from the culture further and further. And what's happening is we're going to the place that everything around us seeks to kill and destroy that which is godly. And we go along with it, hoping that they'll just end up turning on themselves. But he's never called us to... In fact, this is what happens. We need to understand this is what 2 Timothy 3 says. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. I'm not saying we're in the last days. I'm not saying this, this passage has nothing to do with end times. It talks about a people and I would say this really coming into 70 A.D., times of difficulty will be there because people are what? They're lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. And I say this, this is my opinion of it, but I, I view this as what most of American churches are like today. The reason why the culture around us is one that seems to be able to do whatever it wills and can prate it down the streets during this month and why it's all there is because the reality is, is we've removed ourselves from the, from the world, we've removed ourselves so far that the light is really under a bushel and we're going to talk about that several chapters from now, but I want to tell you, the light is being hidden if the light was even there in the first place. I find it despicable that we're willing to compromise or people in the name of Christ will compromise for the sake of some and maybe that's what happened. No. Maybe that's why the people of Jerusalem didn't oppose Herod. No. No. I might be reaching a little bit. But maybe the reason why they didn't oppose Herod is because it really wasn't affecting their children. Because their children were three years old. And you know what? They really hadn't lived a life yet. Don't even know if they were even smart yet. They're just toddlers, right? Really didn't affect anything. You know what? Listen. No. Could you imagine the the talk? Listen, all the children two and under, we're going to kill them. But you know what, parents, you can have more kids. It's just we're just taking care of this this rival king. But that's how we live today, and maybe that's that's the attitude towards certain aspects. But what we find at the end of Second of Timothy three says, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all. See, it's the third point here. It's one that's easily identified and destined for destruction. It's a culture that's easily identified and destined for destruction. This evil culture is so easy to identify. This evil culture is so easy to identify and it is destined for destruction. In Matthew 2, verses 19 to 20, is a simple phrase, a simple two, two simple sentences. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And we need to understand that the end of all things, if it isn't righteousness, if it isn't God-honoring, it's going to end in destruction. In Second Peter chapter 2, it talks about A people destined for destruction let me read this to you I'm going to read it to you because I, I'm trying to lay a foundation walking into this place when we talk next week about John the Baptist and John the Baptist comes in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus it's a big jump all of a sudden okay we're going to talk about this understand the heart and the place of the people where they're at but false prophets it says also rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who brought who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed a good example of this is the the Baptist pastor in our local news who's who was who's been in, uh who's been placed under arrest for molesting Uh, family member and well-known church in the Houston area Um, and that's one of the things people are afraid of that the truth and the Word of God and the Christians are going to be blasphemed well that's what happens when uh, when when people in the in the in the name of Jesus do evil things And it says in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the by the sensual conduct of the wicked for that as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous uh, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one, whereas angels, through though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes and reveling the, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. They have followed, followed the way of blame. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I want you to think of this aspect. A people who do not follow after the Lord. A people who do not follow after the course that God has set before them. A people who turn their back and go after their own ways. Time and time again, we have examples throughout Scripture of God's destruction. We have the destruction of the flood with Noah. Right? Right? Now, what, what, was, what was God's promise? I will never. He set a rainbow in the clouds, saying, "I will never destroy the whole earth by water again." But does that did He ever say, "I will not never destroy men again"? No, He never said that. We have the story, we have the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and basically, are wiped off the face of the earth as fire fell from heaven because of their their sinfulness and lusting after things that God had said called abominable. They called evil. And God struck them dead. He saved right he saved Lot and his family. As they were leaving, we hear the remember the account of Saul he told them never to turn around and, and what happened to Lot's wife. She turned to a pillar of salt. What she was she was killed because she looked back upon the destruction. Why? We don't know, but she she turned back to look upon that which maybe she lusted after herself. It was a place that she considered home, a place of of pleasure. I don't know. But in doing so, she she disobeyed the Lord. And, and, And every time that God has set His people free and He's led them, He's told them not to look back to where they were enslaved, but always look forward to God's promised land, what God had in store for them. Second, ten, Second, Peter two tells us these are people; they're destined for destruction. You know, Herod could kill all the babies. Pharaoh, what was Pharaoh? What did Pharaoh order them to do? To kill the babies, didn't he? We can time and time again, evil men have tried to do evil things, but God has always saved someone. Moses was saved when Pharaoh put out an edict to kill all the Hebrew children, right? Interesting that he was saved through the waters, and the one who made the edict to kill all the children ended up that Moses was raised in his house. Yes, isn't it interesting that, that when Herod, the, the, king, the, the king, there decides to kill all the babies, God sends them back to Egypt, and they are delivered. And although the many children were murdered, what we do find is that Jesus was saved. His name, if you remember this, was he was to bring salvation to his people. He had a purpose. So why do I even bring this up? We have to recognize the culture around us. We need to follow his example in a culture that's this way. And here's B, There's the last simple point. We stand in the gap for the oppressed. In so many ways, this comes up. Joseph's example is, Joseph didn't have to do... I'm going to say this in this way. Joseph didn't have to do anything he did. He could have said, I hear you, Lord, but I'm not going to do it. He could have said that, right? But he didn't. If you recognize the law of God, you recognize the culture that is there... We need to understand that Joseph did something. Is we are to stand, and our example is we stand in the gap for the oppressed. Now Jesus had not been oppressed as of yet. There was no way he was going at that point, but I want to understand that. But Joseph stood up and he did what a godly man, what godly men and women should do, but in a culture that it takes godly men also to stand and do these things. And I, I hear, I'm reminded of First Corinthians sixteen thirteen it says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you, be do, that you do be done in love. I am not saying that women can't do mighty great things for the Lord. We see, Remember, if you remember, we talked about that. We see women lay their lives down on the line in order to, to, uh, to do God's will. There's no doubt but in this case, what we see is a great example in the life of Christ. We see Mary, who's chosen by God, and she carries this child. She births this child. She raises this child. But you also have someone who, in the name of Joseph, who is who is betrothed. He, is, he has done everything he's supposed to. He wants to marry Mary. He want, He's ready to begin a life with her. And the very first child that's raised in his house is the Son of God. Once again, I go back to it. He doesn't let Jesus be an orphan. He protects Jesus by leaving everything that he knows to save his life. And he leads. is led by the Spirit in order to lead him to the place where he will continue to grow and mature in, his, in this world and be used by God. We are called to be watchful. We're called to stand firm in our faith. We're called to act like men. Act like men. Act like women. In the sense of not us as men, but men, men, women, women. Be strong in our faith. And do everything we do in love. I think a great article that just came out by um, a young man. His name is John Andrew Reisner. He, he's highlighting some things along with AHA and uh, the idolatry that was there. He says, I'm still an abolitionist. Here's the thing. He said, but, but the cause of Christ is not abolitionism. It's part of it. He said, when we do everything, when, 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 when that call is activism and it's not Christ, first then we have a rival god we have a rival culture i i'd love i encourage people to go back go and look up his article i'll, I'll try to place it um, out there for us to read a, a wonderful argument from a lit, eyewitness from some problems that were there and what god is what god is showing him and revealing to him and how he's moving him to do do uh, his work and just in in spite of But also, I reminded of Proverbs twenty-four, ten, about when we talk about standing in a gap, twenty-four, ten through twelve. He says, "If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength your strength is small." He tells us then, "Rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter." If you say, "Behold, we did not do did not know this," does he not who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? When we are told that we are to stand in the gap, when we're told to be strong in the faith, when we're to take look after the oppressed, we're the to 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 look after the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the foreigner, the poor, all those things. And we look at God and say, Yeah, I don't think I can't. Or I don't know if I can. Or we say we or we, we say we did our best. And does not God weigh our hearts? Does God not know? Will he not hold us accountable? Joseph could have said, he's your son, take care of him. And left everything. But he did... I think there's an example to be had there. Not everybody, not every situation in our community is our fault are there poor people in our community absolutely is it our fault they're poor no are there illegal immigrants in our community you want to use the word illegal immigrants are there illegal immigrants in our community absolutely Is it our fault that they're illegal? Is it our fault that they've had hardship? Is it our fault that they've come all this way? No. But our response can't be, it's not my fault, therefore it's not my problem. Because in every situation that God puts before us, it is God's situation. It's God's moment, His opportunity for us to act. The question we have is, is will we follow the example of Joseph or will we follow the example of Herod or the people of Jerusalem? Think about that. Will we act and respond in obedience to what God calls us to? Or will we destroy people who God calls us to go to? Or will we stand by and do nothing while other people destroy them? Whether it be immigrants, whether it be the poor, whether it be babies in the womb. Will we stand by and do nothing? Will we say nothing? Will we stand for nothing? And don't think that God doesn't see it. For God will hold us accountable. I'm going to end it like that, because we'll understand why John preaches what he preaches in the wilderness, why he calls the people, the people of God, to repent. I think it's the same call that needs to cry out to the people of God today, and uh, that's what we're going to see that for next week. Um, I had to break it up in two, uh, I did this in two messages because of that, instead of one. But let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, I know that this seems like a just a cut and dry, just cut at the end type message, but Lord, we have to evaluate ourselves and test ourselves and see, Lord, if we are being obedient to you like Joseph, we have to just see if we are the Herods of this world. Or are we being the people who allow the Herods of this world to do everything they want to do and never oppose them? Because our lives are too important to ourselves. Our situations are just... Our, our sustainability is more important to us than, Lord God, and Lord, obedience to you. And in those situations, maybe, Lord, that what we're doing is instead... We prefer the being called a child of God, but we act like a child of the devil, which is exactly where John comes in next week. Lord, what is so important to us to prevent us from being obedient to you? Is it being comfortable? Is it the, the fear of the unknown? Or whatever it is. Whatever that stronghold or whatever that idea is, whatever those things are, my prayer today is that you will destroy them. Now, Lord, if all else fails, you will raise up from this small gathering a people who will do what you've called us to do. And Lord, if no one else will, Lord, let it just begin with us individually. Lord, my prayer is that you will break your people unto your will. That though we see a culture that is perverse and a culture that is hell-bent on death and destruction, that it will be overcome by the light of the gospel. Because that's what you've told us. And Lord, I I call upon your promise that, Lord God, you've called us to be a light. You've called us to be salt. And Lord, if we are obedient to those things, my prayer is that you will fulfill your promises, that you will... You will do more than preserve, but, but Lord God, that you will light the darkness and the darkness will flee. Father, I pray that you continue to, to work in us and, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, Lord God, convict us of unrighteousness, Lord God, convict us of, of, of selfishness, Lord God, convict us of the things that you would have, and Lord God, lead us in the way that, that your way, your way that is everlasting. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.